Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Today is a really exciting day on Go Green Radio. We're honored to be joined by Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, who's the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate, and Community Revitalization for the National Wildlife Federation, also known as NWF. And we're going to be talking about the ways that NWF is um, operationalizing and prioritizing environmental justice in their work and in their programs and in their operations. And I'm so excited to have uh, Dr. Ali with us. He has been an environmental justice warrior on the front lines since the beginning. In fact, he is a founding member of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Ali. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. Well, thank you. And, you know, environmental justice um, is is a term that's being used a lot these days. We're hearing about it more and more. Um, but it means something different to a variety of different groups and people who are working on it. And I'd like to begin by having you give us your definition of environmental justice. Well, you know, I was a part of the creation of the definition of environmental justice, you know, back in the 90s. And when I was in the government, we used to say that environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, you know, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income. And with respect to the development and implementation and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies, you know, that that's fine as a governmental definition. But, you know, when we're talking about environmental injustice, you know, we are talking about the sacrifice zones that have been created um, across our country and black and brown and indigenous and Asian and Pacific Islander and lower wealth white communities often um, through policy. Um, and, you know, that, that has played out in both housing and transportation uh, and health care, uh, the environment, jobs, and a number of other dynamics that create these sacrifice zones when it's done incorrectly and um, when it's done um, and not being a helpful way. Um, and, but we have the opportunity to also change that dynamic um, and to begin to unpack and dismantle those aspects that are not working. Uh, for often, you know, we label folks as communities on the other side of the tracks or a number of other descriptors. So we can, we can make sure that everybody begins to move from this survival sort of set of situations to a thriving set of opportunities. Well, and that that is the best goal of all. Um, when we talk about equity, we talk about, um, you know, a better future for our country, um, having every neighborhood protected under our laws in the same ways, um, having children grow up in neighborhoods where they are not subjected to environmental pollution and degradation that is more copious than people in other zip codes. I can't think of a higher calling. I'd love for you to talk to us about the National Wildlife Federation's board and how they decided to invest in the work of environmental justice. What was the process that they went through in order to make this a priority? Well, you know, it's an, an ongoing process, and there was a lot of work um, that happened a few years ago. So, you know, first of all, you've got to have leadership um, that is willing um, to 
began to evolve. Um, Colin O'Mara, you know, the president of the National Wildlife Federation, and I had a conversation, and he said that, you know, wanted to create a 21st century organization and understood that environmental justice needed to be a very strong component um, to make that happen. Um, so you had work happening by folks um, like Diane Dillon Ridgely, uh, who was a board member, um, but also a long, long time uh, champion and, and connected to NWF. And, and she was doing some early work in helping to socialize folks to many of the things that were happening across the country and, and areas where NWF um, had a footprint and, and in other locations. Um, and then you had other folks uh, who are also working sort of the internal component around the DEI sets of work and helping folks to begin to, you know, go through some trainings and, and, and unpack uh, some of the biases that we often don't even know that we have and, and how those also play out in some of the decision-making and criteria setting and, and a number of other things that are really important uh, as organizations are you know, sort of framing out the directions that they want to go. Uh, and, and then, of course, I joined the board. And then we began uh, to have these conversations in a broader context uh, about um, our mission and some of the things that we hope to be able to do better. Uh, and then we just began the journey of continuing to educate folks uh, to integrate it uh, into, you know, not only our criteria, uh, but also our resolutions um, which are a big driver, um, and that was the beginning of our journey. Um, and, you know, we've been extremely blessed. 97% of our board um, very, very early on um, became uh, champions for the issue, um, and, you know, we surveyed folks, and they said, yes, you know, if we want to make sure that we're continuing to be uh, a leading organization in the environmental and conservation space, then this has to be one of those issues that, we find as a fundamental element. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because that is a very similar journey that my board of directors has taken with the nonprofit organization I founded back in 2002, the Go Green Initiative. We work with schools throughout the country and around the world. And within the last couple of years, our board has really pivoted to a focus on school districts that are in environmental justice communities and or in communities where there's low food access and and actually placing some preferential treatment on those communities who need our services the most. And so it was a matter of, you know, aligning our mission, our strategic plan to that, but then also, and most importantly, looking at how we how we spend our money and how we raise our money and how we uh, apply our the resources of our organization to our commitment to environmental justice. You know, Dr. Ali, as a kid, I'm going to geek out for a second. I was super into Ranger Rick magazines. <laughs> and to this day, I cannot wait for the National Wildlife Federation annual reports to come out because I can't get enough of the pictures of the wild animals. And I grew up thinking that NWF fought for animals and wildlife protection. But a lot of times when we think about environmental justice, we often think about protecting people from pollution and environmental degradation. Talk to us about how NWF incorporates environmental justice into its mission? 
Well, we first start with the, the principles of environmental justice. So, you know, um, I grew up with those same Ranger Rick magazines that you did <laughs> um, and, and always look forward to them. They were in my library, um, and mm-hmm. that's where I used to be able to get them. But, you know, when you think about NWF, um, and, of course, many folks uh, initially might not think about environmental justice, and when you go back to those first 17 principles of environmental justice, the first one, um, talks about honoring the sacredness of Mother Earth and ecological unity and the interdependence of all species and the right to be free from ecological destruction. Well, that's one of the things that NWF has been focused on, you know, uh, since its very early days mm-hmm. um, and is in um, complete alignment um, with what those early leaders in 1991, when those first principles of environmental justice were created. So, you know, as we began to, to share and help people to get grounded in those principles of environmental justice, it made the integration, uh, the, you know, those steps that were necessary, um, you know, make sense because it's in alignment with uh, uh, much of the, of the mission and um, gave folks sort of a framework, if you will, um, to begin to think about how they do their work um, how are we engaging with folks? And we also brought the HEMES principles in for organizing um, so that as we began to integrate environmental justice into all of our policies, programs, budgeting decisions, um, and the way that we engage with communities, um, taking a look at how folks had done work in the past. And there was some really great work that happened. Um, you know, you had some uh, folks like Simone Lightfoot, um, who's now the AVP for environmental justice, but she ran the urban initiative for NWF for years and was doing work um, in communities that, you know, were being disproportionately impacted, utilizing some of the examples uh, of the amazing work that she was doing and others helped us um, as we were beginning to unpack um, the spaces and places inside of our own entity um, that we wanted to make sure that environmental justice was being integrated into um, mm-hmm. and working with folks, bringing in uh, leaders uh, from the front lines to have conversations with folks, uh, making sure that um, those leaders also were engaging with us as we were thinking about policy development or the things that we would be advocating for on Capitol Hill um, or also you know, the work that's going on with our affiliates around the country. Um, so that, that's a part of, of that journey of integration. Um, but it all goes back to, and I hope for all the listeners, um, if you're beginning or expanding your journey uh, on environmental justice, um, that the principles, uh, those 17 principles, are a strong foundation that you are utilizing along with the MS principles. Um, and I think that they will help you to be, um, you know, moving in, in, in the proper direction um, as uh, just a couple of the sets of tools that you should have, um, you know, as a part of your process. Agreed. Agreed. Those those documents are the backbone um, and, and a template over which you can lay decisions about strategies, programs, policies. I want to talk about some of the specific programs that NWF is spearheading 
related to environmental justice. And let's begin with the roundtable series that you all conducted on COVID-19. One of the quotes in your report comes from a representative from New Mexico who says, when you're breathing polluted air, it would make sense that when a respiratory illness comes your way, that you would be more susceptible to it. What are some of the policy recommendations that came out of that discussion? Oh, we were so incredibly blessed. I mean, we had so many different types of leaders uh, who were a part of that COVID roundtable series and then the national town hall. I mean, it literally was a who's who uh, of folks across our country. Um, And and out of it, let me just go back and, and give some context Um, we've always operated um, from the principle that communities speak for themselves um, and that their sets of challenges and opportunities have to be pushed to the forefront. You know, so out of of the COVID-19 set of roundtables and the information that we share with folks on Capitol Hill and state houses and then our partners also utilized it, um, you know, in other areas uh, that they were engaging with, You know, we had all kinds of different things. You know, on the housing side of the equation, you know, we were trying to make sure that that folks had uh, affordable housing um, and also to understand that, you know, there were a lot of communities across our country who had this additional stressor from COVID, but they were also dealing with, you know, the sets of climate crises, the storms and wildfires um, that were damaging homes and taking homes away um, so that there was that direct connection was there. So... You know, we were pushing forward uh, on legislation and policy, you know, to make housing more affordable, you know, to to make sure Mm -hmm. that we were giving more access to housing as well, because we also had a component of our conversations that was dealing with uh, folks who are housing insecure. Some people might utilize the term homeless, but we say housing insecure. Um, So we wanted to make sure that those sets of conversations were going forward also so that whether folks are working and can't afford a home, folks are living in floodplains and are dealing with situations there, you know, or folks are housing insecure, um, that, you know, there are needs that exist inside the space. You know, folks were also in the housing context talking about as we were going through the COVID-19 moment and folks were trying to kind of get their act together, um, both on state levels and, and federal levels, you know, that the, we had these eviction moratoriums that were, yeah. we were trying to make sure that were in place also so that folks got some room to breathe um, right. and didn't have to, you know, worry about that happening. We also had a number of different issues around health care, and we saw that there were a number of, especially in rural areas, that clinics and hospitals had closed down and people didn't have access um, right. And especially the additional challenges that folks were dealing with in relationship to COVID and worrying about where can I go, what can I do, you know, how Absolutely. will I be able to see a doctor. Absolutely. We had the uh, infrastructure issues around broadband and so many other issues. So it was really about highlighting the voices of folks who are on the front lines um, dealing with these situations and trying mm-hmm. to help them to have, um, you know, some support. Absolutely. And those policy recommendations are so solid. And we'll talk about where to find those after we take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Well, welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization for the National Wildlife Federation, NWF. And if you want to check out their website and kind of follow along with some of the documents that we're talking about in terms of how they're incorporating environmental justice into their work, it's so simple. Just open a new tab in your web browser and go to nwf.org. And then if you click on the button that says our work and scroll down, you can click on environmental justice. And there you'll find some of the documents that we're referencing in in terms of some of the roundtable discussions that they've been having. And the one on COVID-19 is what we're discussing now. And Dr. Ali, one of the quotes highlighted in the section of the report on civic engagement reads, when the pandemic happened, we knew that it was going to create an additional barrier to people being counted in the census. We know that black and brown people are disadvantaged and we need to make sure that we are using civic engagement to lift up their voices. This pandemic is showing a lot of people that if they're not civically engaged, their communities could go away. And that was from Tamika Ramsey of the Black Women's Roundtable. Talk to us about how NWF can address inequities in civic engagement. Well, you know, we do it in a number of different ways. You know, one is by creating authentic collaborative partnerships um, with frontline organizations, but also with organizations that have a lot of experience and a long track record you know, also um, in things dealing with the, the civic process um, and voting. Um, so, you know, we were blessed that the NAACP uh, and the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, you know, were our partners, um, along with others, as we went on this journey uh, around our roundtable series. 
And when we realize that there are a number of different dynamics, of course, that are going on in, in vulnerable communities, especially during COVID uh, and still to this day, you know, one of those is, you know, we, we have our social distancing uh, protocols that are in place. So, you know, for many black and brown communities, whether we're talking about the census, we're talking about getting folks registered to vote or those different types of things, um, that there hasn't always been the investments in those communities um, to, to make sure that they are, you know, have the ability to fully participate. Um, and we also understood and, you know, we shared and, and many of the others uh, who have expertise in this space really helped to educate folks that when we talk about the census, we are literally talking about significant investments that can go into your community if you're a part of the process, if you're being counted. Um, and we wanted to make sure that those numbers were uh, increasing and that folks understood the utility of taking the time uh, to fill out those uh, respective documents, to have those conversations with individuals um, who maybe were knocking on your door. Um, and so that was one part of it. The other part of it was that you can't just stop there. Um, and we never tell anyone who to vote for. Um, but we do say that you have to get engaged in the civic process because, you know, if you're going to make sure that there are individuals um, who are, you know, your elected representatives, whether on the local level, the county level, the state, or, or on the federal level, um, then you've got to be a part of that process. Um, and it plays out in so many incredible ways. You know, if you take a look at, you know, what are the deficits that currently exist inside of your community? You know, much of that, um, of course, is tied to um, the resources and to the decision makers um, who are creating uh, legislation, um, which plays a role with policy. Um, so we went through that process um, with folks, um, bringing in just amazing folks um, who could unpack that um, and help to better, better strengthen communities in, in that particular space. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that is incredibly valuable. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't realize how important the census is and, and then engaging um, in local meetings, city council, school board, uh, your local water agency. All of those are public meetings where people can really have a voice and an influence. And in fact, that's something that we work on with high school students and some of the programs that we have with the Go Green Initiative. And your COVID-19 report had a section on education. And there's a line in that report that's very near and dear to my heart uh, with the work that we do. It says, according to our roundtable participants, deteriorating infrastructure has resulted in student and teacher exposure to asbestos, mold, flaking lead paint, lead pipes, and overall poor circulation and air quality. What are some of the ways that NWF can work on these issues, Dr. Ali? Well, you know, we have, uh, I think it's about 12 to 14 million students who are part of our eco-schools program. So one of the ways is that we share information like was inside uh, of this COVID uh, report um, with all those institutions um, and, of course, in the framing out of our program um, to help folks to have a better understanding of how there are some of these public health impacts that are going on, especially um, in relationship to, you know, black and brown and indigenous and, and lower wealth white schools. And um, out of that, helping folks to also understand how when we don't address these issues, there are these really, really significant impacts um, on how kids learn um, and their ability to actually really grow um, and thrive 
Um, so we've been utilizing that and then also sharing with the elected officials who also participated with us um, who can actually go back and craft legislation or strengthen legislation uh, and to make sure that there are not gaps and then also to direct resources. Um, so we do it in a number uh, of different ways. We do it on the ground um, with you know teachers and school districts and others, but then we also understand that we've got to utilize those levers of power, whether they're on the local, county, state, or federal level. Um, and, um, you know, we're blessed that we've had so many different types of folks who have participated with us um, in this roundtable series that we're talking about, and then a number of others as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really powerful section on food apartheid in the COVID-19 report, and it reads as follows. Access to healthy foods is not always an option in low-income communities, which are more likely to be surrounded by fast food restaurants and stores with lower quality foods. Inadequate public transportation systems also make it difficult for community members to travel to stores with higher quality nutritious food. As a result, low-income communities and communities of color are more likely to suffer from underlying health conditions such as diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, factors that exacerbate COVID-19-related health complications. What are some of the recommendations in the report, and how can NWF help facilitate solutions? Well, there were a number of different ones. And again, you know, kind of going back to those leaders uh, in that space to, to really help us to make sure that we were sharing the right types of information. So, you know, a part of it um, was about making sure that we are redirecting resources and, and getting, you know, uh, healthier food options inside of communities. So working with both uh, those who are crafting legislation and then also working with co-ops um, as well um, to mm-hmm. make sure that the partnerships are being developed, that, that folks know about some of the uh, co-ops that are out there and in utilizing some of the best practices and models that they've had in place Um, has been critically important as well. Um, And then the other part of the equation, you know, was also helping folks to understand that this is both a urban and a rural issue Mm -hmm. um, was another part that we really wanted to make sure that we highlighted because we often um, see, you know, these food deserts being, um, you know, primarily thought of as being in urban centers. But we had a number of folks who came from rural backgrounds um, who also talked about difficulty in being able to, you know, get to um, whether it be a, a supermarket or the assumption that because they lived in a rural area, you know, folks were able to grow all the things that they needed. So we wanted to make sure that we were, um, you know, sort of dispelling those myths um, and, and sharing information again with a number of different folks and building bridges between uh, different groups and individuals um, to begin to. Uh, help to strengthen that space. You know, one of the things that surprised me in your COVID-19 report was a section on gun violence. I didn't expect it. But as I read that section, I understood the connection. Um, Here's a line from the report. As our healthcare system is overburdened with COVID-19, gun-related victims are at greater risk of not receiving the care they need in order to survive. Help us understand some of the findings and recommendations in that section of NWF's COVID-19 report. Well, you know, lots of times when folks are victims of gun violence, um, you know, the emergency room is the first uh, spot that people go. 
And, you know, when we were going through uh, the, that initial part of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, like once again, um, our emergency rooms were overrun. Um, so that was a part of it. We also wanted to tie in the fact of mental health stressors. So um, as we were going through and continue to go through COVID-19, you know, we saw an increase um, in, in a number of different mental health conditions that were related to, to stress, that were related to folks losing their jobs, that was related to, um, you know, the loss of loved ones. Um, and we wanted to, you know, just build the bridge there so folks would understand uh, some of these dynamics. And then the third part of it, was helping people to also understand, especially in vulnerable communities, that there are a number of studies that were out there that talk about one that talks about uh, areas with higher uh, levels that they also um, see an increase in gun violence and that um, also when heat uh, increases, and of course that ties into the climate crisis, that there's also an increase uh, in gun violence. So we took all that information. Um, and, and began to, uh, once again, engage with those stakeholders who began to share additional sets of tools and resources to be able to address that. Uh, and then, again, going back to uh, those individuals who have the ability uh, to, you know, create legislation um, uh, to affect policy, um, mm-hmm. to share that as well. So, Absolutely. And then the other part of it, of course, is the redirect of resources. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ali, this is fascinating. We have so many more questions to ask you, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. We're talking about how the National Wildlife Federation, one of the most respected conservation organizations on the planet, is working on a topic that you all know is near and dear to our hearts, and that is environmental justice. And in fact, our guest today is one of the founding members of the EPA's um, environmental justice organization and, and helped to really set the stage for all of the conversations that we're we're seeing happening in many levels of government, in many organizations now, and that is how do we address the environmental injustice that is so clearly happening in our in our country? I, I want to pivot to another environmental justice project under the National Wildlife Federation, and it's called Creating Safe Spaces. And one of the key findings in the report is lack of representation. Dr. Ali, talk to us about how lack of representation impacts people of color as it pertains to safe spaces in nature. Well, you know, it plays out in a number of different ways. Um, When we look at the outdoor industry, as an example, and when we look at um, the marketing there um, and the individuals uh, whose faces we see, we often don't see black and brown and indigenous uh, faces being represented there. So people make the assumption, well, I guess those folks don't care about, um, you know, what's happening in outdoor spaces. Um, and, of course, we all know that that's not true. Um, and then also when we look at many of the individuals um, who work in those spaces, we often um, don't see um, as many uh, faces of color. Um, so if I'm a, a young child, and, you know, I, I was blessed. You know, I grew up in Appalachia, and I grew up in a little bit in Michigan as well. So I spent a lot of time outdoors. Uh, but I know when I would go to a national park uh, or to state parks, um, you know, the, the folks who were there, you know, working, I very rarely saw someone who looked like me. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they didn't exist. But it does mean that, you know, we have work to do um, to make sure. And a part of our uh, creating safe spaces was really about uplifting all these amazing folks of color um, who work um, in outdoors, whether it's the outdoor industry um, or maybe they're a ranger or all the other suites um, of different types of things. Um, that we have uh, individuals who are leading on. So um, that was one part of it. But the other part of it was also um, highlighting for folks that there are these injustices that are happening that we rarely hear about um, in the outdoors and that we have to be really laser-focused on making sure that we're addressing them um, so that more folks of color um, see the outdoors um, as an inviting space, um, as, a, as a space uh, where they belong. Um, so, you know, we saw what happened in Central Park. You know, so we have, you know, lots of folks who utilize urban parks, but we had individuals like Christian Cooper, where unfortunately there was a young lady there who mm-hmm. decided to try and weaponize the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know how dangerous that can be, uh, especially for uh, folks of color. You know, we have seen... 
uh, some of these instances that have gone on across the country. You have individuals like Vox Booker in Indiana, um, you know, a young man who was with friends um, at a, a state park, and um, some a gentleman attacked him and, you know, uh, was alleged to have tried to, to lynch him. Um, so that sends ripples and messages um, uh, you know, out across the country that this may be an unsafe space uh, for folks of color. Um, luckily, there are a number of organizations of, of color who do work, um, you know, nonprofits who are really uplifting, getting people out hiking and biking and fishing and hunting and all these different types of things that so many of us have been able to enjoy. And, and we all know that when we go into the outdoors, um, for many folks, it's an opportunity to reconnect with something larger than ourselves. You know, it is an opportunity to recharge. Um, uh, for some folks, it's an opportunity to rest. Um, so we want to make sure that everybody um, is blessed with those opportunities that many of us have been able to uh, utilize over the years. And creating safe spaces is about that. It is about putting and highlighting those individuals who are doing amazing work, like Mamie mm-hmm. Parker, you know, a, a very world-class wildlife biologist, and she shared some of her experiences as being a woman of color um, and trying to do her work and people asking questions of why are you here, but that not dissuading her um, mm-hmm. and, and continuing to, you know, build relationships over the years um, or her car being, you know, uh, vandalized while she was out doing water quality testing. You know, all these types of things are, are part of that narrative, but what we're trying to do is to make sure that we are working together in a collaborative way uh, to address uh, the impacts, but also to really, really be focused on the sets of solutions and opportunities. Well, and, and you know, when we go into the outdoors, you know, there's always threats to our physical safety. I mean, it could be bears, it could be (laughs) uh, snakes, those types of things, but it shouldn't be other human beings and and the physical safety of people of color and and their assurance that they're only thinking about the same things that everybody else that is out there is thinking about, you know, I don't want to get a rattlesnake bite or, you know, don't feed the bears. That that should be the the level of comfort that everybody feels in outdoor spaces and the physical safety issues that you raised and that we've all seen on the news um, are just unacceptable. And I think, you know, one of the other barriers to access that was identified in the report um, has a great line here. It says, many Black youth, especially in urban areas, lack access to experiential learning and recreation in the outdoors due to lack of funding, transportation, and opportunities. What are some of the recommendations that NWF has identified to rectify this inequity? Well, first of all, we start by sharing with folks, um, you know, some of the successes that we've seen, you know, uh, with our Earth Tomorrow program, which Crystal Jennings runs um, out of Atlanta, where, you know, kids who had never spent any time in the forest uh, have the opportunity to, to you know, camp uh, and and learn and uh, to engage with wildlife um, and to learn all these different skills that, you know, many of us who are in the Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts and Girl Scouts and, and a number of the other organizations had the opportunity to. So we put that forward so that folks can see, you know, how transformative uh, these sets of experiences are, uh, are for young people when they get that opportunity. Then 
We also share recommendations about for those who are currently working in this space, um, you know, who are, who are not folks of color, um, the various sets of, of trainings um, that are necessary, and then how to also build some things into folks' performance standards uh, mm-hmm. to help them along their journey. Um, then we also share recommendations of different experts who are in the space of color um, so that your organization has the opportunity to, to bring them in as you're working on some of your priority setting um, to, to really strengthen the direction that you may be um, going in um, is one of those other sets of recommendations. And, of course, you know, on the legislative side, we want to make sure that those uh, agencies and departments that have some responsibility um, around the outdoors um, that they are integrating environmental justice uh, into their sets of work, uh, into their sets of training, um, and also in how they deploy their resources. Um, so we hit it from a number of different directions. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a section in that same report uh, called History and Education, and one of the findings was this. African Americans have always had a connection to the outdoors because nature was a place of refuge for enslaved Africans. However, after emancipation, people of color were barred from entering parks and lakes. Dr. Ali, how does this history still impact Black Americans and their feelings of safety in outdoor places? Well, you know, that history is passed on from generation to generation. As I dove deeper into the issue, I was amazed you know, I, you know I've, I was blessed that a number of civil rights leaders have mentored me over the years. So, you know, I heard, you know, about some of the injustices of, you know, water fountains that folks weren't able to drink at and, and sitting at counters and those different types of things. But I had no idea, you know, that there were rivers and lakes um, that literally you were restricted from being able uh, to, to swim in. Uh, to to be able to camp around, all these various types of things. Um, so, you know, a part of that history is really giving the fullness of where we've come from um, and being able to begin to make sure that we are addressing the, the spaces that still exist across our country um, where folks um, haven't, you know, felt welcomed. And um, so for us, it has really been about creating a, a very holistic cycle of, understanding the history, um, but also helping brothers and sisters understand um, that, you know, that even though we still have some challenges, that they, you know, that they have a right um, to be able to access um, and enjoy um, our outdoor spaces. Absolutely. The report lists three pieces of legislation for us to consider, and I'd like to have you talk about each one. And let's begin with the Environmental Justice for All Act. Help our listeners understand this piece of legislation. Yeah, that's a piece of legislation from Congressman Grijalva and Donald McEachin and, of course, a number of others. And it really uh, gave or gives uh, those folks on Capitol Hill.